All right, let me pray as we start. Lord, we do really want to submit our plans and our resources to you, knowing that you're in control of it all, you own it all, and you are so good. So would you come now? Would you help us to understand these passages in James 4, 13 through 5, 6? We trust you, we love you, and we are so glad that you are with us as we walk through these passages. Thank you for challenging us. Thank you for confronting us where we need to be confronted. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book of James has confronted us over and over, has it not? I think we've been reminded over and over that uh, as I sing to my grandchildren, we are weak, but he is strong. That's right. So last week in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, we had a series of warnings about the enemies that we face in our Christian walk. And some of those enemies are external. They are the world, the devil, and some are internal enemies, those enemies of our fleshly passions, our desires, our sins that that war against us, especially pride and a critical spirit. And as we walk with Jesus, we become more and more like him. And that process is called sanctification. So as we cry out for more and more of God's grace, he sends more of the Spirit's enabling power for us. We're grieved over the sin in our lives, and we desire to live steadfastly aligned with God's will. And that's the title of our lesson today. Now, the opposite posture is often celebrated as individualism. It's the air that we breathe, isn't it, in our culture? Me willing, not God willing. And I think if this attitude had a poem, it might be Invictus. You might recognize some of these words. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Have you heard that? Yeah. Well, and I think if this attitude had a theme song, it would be Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way, (laughs) which I Googled, and Google told me that this is the most requested song at funerals. Not at the North Church. (laughs) But I I just, I think that's sad, and it goes like this, and now the end is here, and so I face the final curtain, My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more, I did it. I did it my way. What is the root problem, do you think, in this song, the poem? Self, yep, self-centered, and pride, right? To pride, to think that we can live our lives without God. And according to James, prideful people who think they control their own future will, we've learned in the past, they'll easily become friends of the world and the world's wisdom. They like to hear, but they never quite get around to doing God's will. They don't seek grace from God. They remain enslaved to their sinful passions. And when people live life with this kind of an attitude, they're often jealous of others, and they seek their own way that we learned last week. It leads to quarrels and murdering others in our hearts. So in today's passage, James is essentially poking a hole in that prideful attitude, and he's continuing his warning to humble ourselves before God. 
And the best way to be humbled is to consider the precarious nature of our lives and be reminded that God determines our future and that we do not. There is freedom in realizing that God is sovereign and we are not. So James began in chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, to underscore that importance of humility in our lives and how it affects every area of our lives, our character, our conduct. And the theme of this passage is a continuation of James's prior encouragement to humble ourselves before God. So what characterizes our speech when we are humble? Well, you remember we concluded last week's passage in chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 by the fact that we're not critical of others. And that's kind of where this passage starts today. Come now, you who say, all right? Humility and pride affect our speech. What does our future planning look like when we're humble rather than when we think we're in control? What does our wallet say about our humility? How does the humble person respond respond to suffering? That will be next week in James 5, verses 7 through 12. My main point this morning is trust in the sovereignty of God in your planning and in your finances, seeking to do the right thing and treasuring Jesus in all of life. That's one of our phrases here at the North Church. That is our aim. We want to treasure Jesus in all of life. So the first section, chapter chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, my heading is Don't Plan with Presumption. I've always loved calendars, and I've always loved planning ahead. I feel a certain load lifted if I can break out my to-do list over many days instead of thinking I have to do it today. We all face daily decisions about what to do, when to do it, where to go. James is not saying that planning for the future is wrong. It's hard to imagine even living our days with absolutely no idea of what will be happening next. No schedule, no agenda, no timetable. But since we know nothing about tomorrow, only God knows. We need to humbly submit our future plans to God. Hold those plans loosely. If we boast about our future plans, we put ourselves in the place of God. And that ties in with the section that we had last week about putting ourselves in the place of God in terms of judging other people. So don't presume that you are in charge when it relates to your calendar, your time, your plans. Don't be boastful or arrogant. The same God who called us to himself, who implanted his word in us, and who has given us faith in Jesus Christ, he also knows what tomorrow holds because he is the author of tomorrow. That same God who created us, he has numbered our days. I grew up hearing this old song. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. So number one, remember what you are. We are but a mist. We are a vapor. We are here one minute, and we are gone the next. The world will go on without us. Psalm 103.15 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, or kind of like those beautiful leaves on the trees that we've had that are now covered with snow. The wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But this is in stark contrast to God, who the psalm goes on to say, 
The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Sure, our families may remember us for a while. I'd like to think that I will leave a legacy of faith behind for those that come behind me. But can any of you honestly remember even the first name of your great-great-great-grandmother? Probably not. Do any of you know what she loved? Do you know if she trusted Jesus? Probably only a few of us could answer that question. Like a mist, she's gone. Well, the brevity of our lives is certainly one way that God installs humility in us. Moses prayed in Psalm 90, verse 12, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Getting a heart of wisdom, that's what we all want. We number our years, right? But have you ever numbered your days? I discovered that by putting your birth date in to a, in Google and then putting today's date in, you can see how many, year, or how many days you've actually lived. And for me, it's over 23,000 days that I've lived. But I don't think that's what Moses meant. <laughs> he wants us to think ahead in numbering our days. Now, I have a dear friend in our small group who is in hospice care, and she knows that her days are numbered by the Lord, and she's trusting the Lord for his timing. Would we live our lives differently if we knew we had terminal cancer and we might not live to see next year? Or do we presume that we will wake up each morning with fresh breath in our lungs? We need God to help us to number our days, to teach us that, that by seeing their shortness contrasted with God's infiniteness, and we can't grasp that on our own, we presume usually that we have a long time to live. So pray Psalm 39.4. Oh, Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Or pray Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. A plaque hung in the wall in my home as I was growing up, and it reminded us, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Life is a vapor. It is just a mist, so don't waste it. Not only remember what you are, but remember whose you are. Verse 15 says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism from the 1500s has comforted believers throughout many, many generations. It begins with question one. What is your only comfort in life and death? Any of you know Have any of you studied the Heidelberg Catechism, maybe with your kids? The answer is that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, Not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing 
and ready from now on to live for him. Isn't that beautiful? I think that really summarizes this section of James. God is the author of my story and your story. So be consciously aware of God by speaking often of his will. If I get out of bed in the morning, it is because of his fresh mercy to me. All of life is a gift of grace that we don't deserve. Every day we should marvel at God's kindness and his patience and his love. If you belong to Jesus, he is watching over you. He loves you. He knows you. He knows what is best for you. And not a hair of your head can fall to the ground apart from his will. So this, sisters, this phrase, if the Lord wills, it's not meant to be an empty repetition that we glibly tack on to phrases, but it's meant to express our trust in God's good and perfect providence. And it's good for us to think this way. It's one of the ways that we admit that we can't see down the road, but God can, and we acknowledge him in all of our ways, Proverbs 3.6 tells us, as we seek to please him who is in sovereign control. So trust in the sovereignty of God in your planning. Don't arrogantly boast. Now verse 16 in the Phillips version says it this way. You get a certain pride in yourself in planning your future with such confidence. That sort of pride is all wrong. No doubt you agree with the above in theory. Well, remember that if a man knows what is right and fails to do it, his failure is a real sin. This not only leaves God out of the equation in planning, but it leaves, it, it's, they brag about it. It is evil. It's arrogant. There's a disregard for God in this. Now we're going to come back to verse 17 at the end in a few minutes. But I want to ask, what ties these two sections together? If you got to the very last question in your lesson, you, you kind of grappled with that. How do these sections relate to one another? Well, besides the first two words in each, each section that are the same, you notice that it, he introduces each section with the words, come now. All right, The first section is an exhortation to believers to live in light of our identity in Christ as children of God, in God's will, because life is short. And then, because eternity is long, James speaks about the coming judgment. So instead of the language of brothers here and calling us to repentance, James addresses you rich. And he bluntly and forcefully declares what will happen to them in the end. These warnings are not directed at wealthy believers in the church. A good case can be made that James is speaking to rich landowners outside the church who are persecuting the believers to whom James is writing. His language here is quite typical of the Old Testament language that was widespread, condemning the wealthy landowners who exploited the poor who worked their land, who were desperately trying to eke out a living. And it might be tempting for us then, knowing, okay, this is for unbelievers. Can we just pass over this section? It might be tempting to ignore it as not applying to us, but let's not dismiss it too quickly. Craig Blomberg says that James is using a rhetorical tool here called, it's known as an apostrophe. And he says this, this is how it's, he defines it, speaking to people who are not present 
for the benefit of those who are. So James wants us as believers to hear and to heed these dire warnings, to listen in on what he's saying, so that we won't envy the unbelieving, ungodly, rich folks that he is talking to. You've heard the saying, money talks. Well, I want you to listen to this passage again with an ear to hear what he's saying to the rich. And just for variety, I'm going to read it from the Phillips version again. And I had to look up one of the first words, plutocrat. I didn't know what that was. (laughs) It means a tycoon. Okay, so here's the version. He says, and now you plutocrats is the time for you to weep and moan because of the miseries in store for you. Your richest goods are ruined. Your hoard of clothes is moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are tarnished. Yes, their very tarnish will be the evidence of your wicked hoarding, and you will shrink from them as if they were red-hot. You have made a fine pile in these last days, haven't you? But look, here is the pay of the reaper you hired, whom you cheated, and it is shouting against you. And the cries of the other laborers you swindled are heard by the Lord of hosts himself. Yes, you have had a magnificent time on this earth, and you have indulged yourself to the full. You have picked out just what you wanted, like soldiers looting after battle. You have condemned and ruined innocent men in your career, and they have been powerless to stop you. It's powerful to read it in a different version, isn't it? Okay, the next heading I have here for James 5, 1 through 6 is don't prize prosperity or possessions over people or God. Instead, prepare for the judgment to come. James's purpose is to pre- prevent believers from placing their hope in worldly wealth and to trust God for justice, even though they're enduring oppression from the evil rich. So trust in the sovereignty of God and your planning and your finances, seeking to do the right thing in all your pursuits and treasuring Jesus in all of life. Do these verses remind you of any of the teachings of Jesus? In Luke 12, 15, he warns the crowd, take care. And be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he went on to tell a parable. This is the parable of the rich fool, where he thought he had such an abundant harvest that his barns weren't big enough. So he said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to build more barns, bigger barns. And he says, I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this rich, ruthless businessman is like the man that James described in the last section who doesn't know what tomorrow will bring, and he arrogantly boasts of all of his wealth. This word that James uses here for rich is actually a compound word, which means wealth and control. And isn't it true that we often see wealth associated with power in this world? Now, I'm a visual learner, and I find that charts and tables are helpful. So in your handout, on the flip side, you're going to see my attempt to outline this passage with a list of the charges James has in this section, the confirmation or the evidence uh, supporting those charges, the condemnation or the coming judgment on these folks, and then cross-references 
or the other biblical texts that apply. So number one, he accuses them of hoarding, that they have amassed wealth only to have it fade away. I think in the last 10 years or so, the, there's a TV series that has made popular this you know, idea of hoarding and that it's not something good. It's, I haven't seen many episodes, but I've heard that it can be quite distressing to watch You know, when you see the piles of things that people have accumulated in their homes. Well, I'm going to tell you about two brothers named Homer and Langley who were some of the most famous hoarders in history. These brothers were millionaires, and they had highly eccentric and bizarre tastes, and they lived together off the grid in New York City in, a, in the 1930s in a very large house filled to the ceiling with 140 tons of junk. They were afraid that they would be the target of thieves, and so they booby-trapped the entire home with deadly tripwires that were, that were laden with these counterweights that would snap and you know kill the thieves when they came in. But unfortunately, that's what led to their death. They accidentally got smothered by their belongings. And they were discovered later rotting along with their treasures. So I think that's a very vivid picture of what hoarding wealth can do to us as well. And I think it's important that we don't miss the irony in all of this. The rich here who are being condemned by James are the people who hoard their possessions precisely because they trust in those instead of trusting in God and his purposes. But all the things that they hoard will eventually rot. They will corrode. So these people think that they are storing up wealth. They're actually storing up God's wrath because a day of final judgment is coming. They're blind to this reality because they trust in their wealth to save them from whatever is coming in the future. So our bank accounts and even our closets will stand as witnesses. They will be evidence against us. So if we know the right thing to do, what's keeping us from giving away those clothes in our closet that we haven't worn for a few seasons? This lesson prompted me to do just that. (laughs) Number two, stealing or fraud. These people were holding back wages of the honest poor. So here's a little bit of historical context from one commentator that I thought might help us understand the situation. A typical wealthy landowner hired tenant farmers who lived on their estate worked the land, and were allowed to keep a portion of their labor for themselves. Such a person was at the complete mercy of the landowner, not only for a place to live, but for the amount of food they were allowed to keep that would sustain them, and otherwise the food was traded for other necessities. So a greedy landowner could make life absolutely miserable for the tenant farmers, which apparently was the case here. Therefore, it's quite likely that James is referring to the rich outside the church who were cruelly exploiting the poor, many of whom are members of the churches to whom James is writing. It may even be the case that they were doing this because these poor were Jewish Christians who had been forced out of Jerusalem into the countryside because it was increasingly difficult to survive in the cities. So Christian refugees would have been forced into migrant farming or day labor, when many of them had been tradesmen doing something else for a living prior to their conversion to Christianity. So no doubt James is writing to warn these wealthy landowners of a coming judgment, while at the same time he's offering a strong word of encouragement to these poor, persecuted Christians who need to be reminded 
that God is their defender, okay? Number three, he accuses them of uncaring self-indulgence or extravagant living. 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. So we see that pride rising up again. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God wants us to enjoy the blessings of life, but not robbing others in the process. Money can make us obsessed with ourselves rather than caring for others. I also read of a German fashion designer whose cat inherited $1.5 million, making that fat cat now richer than most people on the planet. According to one news source, it's become increasingly popular for the ultra-wealthy to leave behind millions to their beloved pets to be able to maintain their upper-class lifestyles after their owners pass away. However, the logistics of leaving loads of cash to a pet is a gray area. Yes. Lest we think that James was not writing to us, after all, he was writing to unbelieving rich, the average American today is roughly 90 times richer than the average person throughout history. We really should examine our hearts. The Apostle John wrote, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, he urged, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's 1 John 3, 17 and 18. Okay, number four, injustice. We see this in verse five. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. This is a biblical metaphor here for fattening an animal before it's slaughtered, and it applies to those who are foolishly hoarding their wealth while exploiting the poor. There is a great reversal coming. The poor who have no earthly treasure will be rewarded with all the riches and treasures of heaven, and yet the rich who have exploited them will come under God's judgment, and their wealth will be introduced into that heavenly court as evidence to, of their sin. In fact, James can speak here of the injustice of the rich against God's people as being bad enough as though they had actually killed them. He uses strong language in verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. To exploit the poor, especially in the case of those who are being persecuted and who suffer such economic hardship because of their profession of faith in Christ, it's as if the rich had murdered them. Although it may seem like judgment will never come for such wickedness, it's as sure as if it's already happened. Although God may seem silent, he hears every cry of his people. We can trust in God who judges rightly. Colossians 3 says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. So, ending this session, section in a rather bleak note, James offers words of encouragement to his readers in the next verses. In verses 7 and 8 that we'll study next week, it begins like this. Be patient, therefore. All right? So as we wrap up this section, let's consider some applications in our lives. There's a commercial for a credit card that asks, what's in your wallet? Well, what does your wallet have to say about your, your passions and your priorities? 
Does your checkbook indicate what you care most about? Wesley fam famously said, the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. Our finances and the way we spend or invest our money exposes where our hearts are. Jesus said more about money than about any other topic, and he suggested that how we manage our money is an indicator of our spiritual health. In Matthew 6, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We're called to be generous with our money and our time, acknowledging that everything we have comes from God and belongs to God. Paul warned, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's 1 Timothy 6.10. Our love of money reveals a deeper love for the things that money can buy, whether that's pleasure or security or prestige or experiences or independence, travel. And money is the tool that enables all of that. Thus, we're tempted to use it to get those things rather than investing in gospel things, gospel kingdom things like missions and discipleship. So it's good diagnostic questions. These are some questions to ask yourself. Is my spending marked by Christian generosity? Do I hold my money loosely and invest in ways that help others to know the joy in Jesus? Does my spending look like I treasure Christ and love others? Or does my spending say that I treasure other things more? Does my budget reflect a mindset of eternity? John Piper said, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. Does my budget show a tangible support for the spread of the gospel? The world will support a lot of good causes, but the critical task of bringing the good news to the lost and dying peoples all over the globe is something that only believers do. Your neighbors might give to NPR, but who is going to reach the Mapi people that the Indahars are trying to reach in northern Thailand? Pastor Stephen preached this Sunday about discipleship. Matthew 28, God is sovereign. He has all authority, and he wants us to make disciples, and we use our finances in order to do that as well. We want our finances to align with God's will. Jesus sits on the throne in every area of our lives, including our finances. God is not against wealth, but he's against that love of money that leads to other things. It's okay to go earn a good salary and give away much for the sake of the gospel. James is not warning against wealth per se, but the misuse of wealth. So trust God. Trust in the sovereignty of God in your planning and in your finances, seeking to do the right thing in all your pursuits and treasuring Jesus in all of life. We are to set our hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasures for ourselves as a good foundation for the future so that we may take a hold of what is truly life. That's 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. So we submit our plans and our resources to God because God is in control of it all, God owns it all, we can trust in his good provision. So we began by saying we desire to live steadfastly aligned with God's will. Have you ever asked, what's God's will for me? Perhaps in a critical period of your life when you had a large decision looming, 
For some, it becomes an obsessive pursuit, asking for signs, maybe writing in the clouds. Others see God as uncaring about the details of our lives and that he surely doesn't have a will for anything we do. But James has told us that we should acknowledge our dependence on God's will to submit to it rather than to plan presumptively. So how are we to think of God's will? Well, theologians speak of God's will in two primary senses. The first one is his secret will, which is sometimes hidden, but it refers to God's sovereignty, his providential rule over all things, that nothing happens outside of his will. And we don't know what his will is until it comes to pass. It is sovereign but hidden, and nothing will thwart it. Isaiah 46, 9 says, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel or my will shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. And then the second type of God's will is called his revealed will. This is what he's given to us in his word. For instance, in James, we've learned that it is God's will for us to love our neighbor, to not be partial, to bridle our tongues, to humbly submit to God. And how do we know what God's will is here? Because he's told us explicitly. We know what to do, we know what God has called us to do, and we are to live it out by his grace. The problem is that sometimes we want to know what God's hidden will is for the future, but we ignore his revealed will. It's hard to trust God in his plan, especially during various trials. It's hard in times of suffering to remember Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good. We need to acknowledge God in our attitudes and in our actions. And as we close, I want you to go back up and look at verse 17, James 4.17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, For him it is sin. Do the right thing. Do God's will and do it steadfastly. We can sin by neglect as well as by intentional action. Sin can be the failure to do what God commands. Both what we do and what we do not do can be sinful. And Jesus gave examples of those who failed to do the right thing and were condemned. You remember the servant in Jesus' parable who failed to use the money wisely. He buried it instead. And he condemned the goats who failed to care for the least of these in Matthew 25. But Jesus perfectly obeyed God's revealed will. Do you remember on the night before his death, he asked if there was any other way. But he submitted to the Father saying, your will be done. We respond to God by trusting and obeying, by walking in holiness, pursuing Christ-likeness, trusting that God is working all things together for our good and waiting in steadfast hope for his return. So trust in the sovereignty of God in your planning and in your finances, trusting him in doing the right thing in all your pursuits and treasuring Jesus in all of life. So let's pray. Lord, we do want to submit all of our plans to you We want to commit our resources to you, knowing that you are in control of it all, you own it all, and you are good. 
thank you that you hold all things together and we can trust you with our hours, our days, our years. Lord, I pray that you would give us your abundant grace to work to serve. Give us grace in our lives for your glory under your gracious sovereign care. Would you help us not to trust in that false sense of security that our possessions might bring to us, but to trust in your good and amazing provision for us in Jesus. So we pray this in in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.